0: Welcome to Living Yin, a podcast series that seeks to enlighten you about yin yoga, Chinese medicine, philosophy, and meditation. I'm Truth Robinson, and I'm a doctor of Chinese medicine and a yin yoga and meditation teacher. This podcast series seeks to unite the yin yoga practice, the anatomical theory that surrounds it, and the Chinese medicine theory which brings it all to life. My goal is to demystify Chinese medicine, to offer anatomical concepts in a digestible way, as well as offering philosophy for you to go deeper into the layers of your own consciousness. In this episode, we're going to be talking to the tantric scholar, author and teacher, Carlos Pomeda. He spent 18 years as a monk, 9 years of those in traditional training and practice in India. He holds two master's degrees, one in Sanskrit and the other in religious studies. He's currently working on a book on the topic of karma and the journey of the soul, as well as a new translation of an important tantric text of the Kashmiri tradition, the Shiva Sutra. We will discuss the intricacies of Tantra and how to use it to transform our lives. Just letting you know. This podcast was actually released secretly a week before the public release. If you'd like to get your hands on this podcast or YouTube classes a week earlier than everybody else, all you need to do is head over to livingin.com, subscribe to the mailing list, and get an exclusive sneak preview delivered fresh into your mailbox a week before everybody else. So welcome to the podcast, Carlos. It is incredible to have you um, along for this podcast and I'm so excited to chat to you again. It's been, um, it's been quite a while since I've seen you, so it's good to see you again.
1: Yes, it's been one year, so it's just lovely to be connected thanks to the internet.
0: <laughs> so before we get into this and we really get into the nitty-gritty of Tantra, I would really love to find out a little bit more about you, like, where where are you originally from, and where
1: did you grow up? Well, I was I was born in Spain. I grew up during Franco's day. Wow. <laughs> That's was an interesting time. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got to experience the whole shift to democracy and all the changes that happened. And just around the same time, I got into yoga, which uh, in those days it meant Hatha Yoga, and meditation at the same time i just felt like a call you know i saw some posters and i wasn't sure what it was but i just felt somehow i have to do this and and as they say the rest is history i mean it just changed my life particularly meditation then later i met my guru and i went to india spent a lot of time in the ashram practicing and studying and it just it became really the the central point of my life has been the the practice of meditation, and then sharing it with others as well. I mean that's what really gives me the most joy, just to be able to share.
0: So you mentioned that you grew up at the time of Franco. Um, maybe a lot of people don't know who Franco was or, or or what that time was in Spain. I know a little bit about it. Um, I mean you don't need to give us a full history of what happened in Spain during that time, but. It was quite an oppres- oppressive dictatorship. And I was wondering if that maybe pushed you into discovering yoga. Was there was something about that time or that experience that ignited this desire?
1: I think it was not connected to my, uh, my connection to yoga and meditation. I think that was just fate, really, is the best word I can describe okay. it. Because I just felt like I have to do this, even though it wasn't something that I, that I knew... And then when I started studying Hatha Yoga, and it was from a book first, my experience was that I already knew this. It was like I was remembering something. It was really interesting. But what growing up in a dictatorship, which is what Frankenstein was, I mean, he was just a a right-wing dictator who took over the country after a very, very bloody civil war, 36 to 39. My parents lived through that. What growing up in a dictatorship has given me is a real appreciation for democracy and for freedom. And I feel that a generation that has not gone through that or people who grow up in a in a democracy can very easily take it for granted. And when I see everything that's going on here in politics in the U.S., it it, it makes me uneasy because I think uh, taking democracy for granted is is not a good thing, you know. It's like mm-hmm. you really have to defend it and guard it very carefully, you know, like the, the values that are implicit in democracy and and freedom. So that has really is what what marked me very much, you know, the, the respect for for freedom and democracy.
0: You also mentioned that you spent some time over India once you discovered your love of, of yoga and that you met your guru as well. How did you know that your guru was your guru?
1: Well, you know, this is, uh, this is what was going on in the 70s. Right? You had a number of teachers from India traveling. And what happened when I met my guru again, I didn't, I wasn't even clear, you know, because I was so new. I was totally green, you know. And so I had these fantasies about some spiritual teacher, what he was going to look like or whatever. It was nothing like my fantasies because what I met was not somebody, you know, speaking like that, very slowly, dressed in white. He was dressed in the orange of a, of a Swami and he was full of energy. But what caught my eye when I met him is that his presence filled the room when he came in and I was like, wow, i never met anybody like this before. And then in meditation, you know, receiving initiation, uh, he put me in the state of Samadhi. Mm. And so that was a complete 180-degree change in my life because all of a sudden, uh, you know, from being... I had lost my faith uh, growing up a Catholic. I was an atheist. And all of a sudden going from that, saying, oh, this is all nonsense, to having an experience within myself of transcending this body this mind this personality and realizing experientially directly that we are all this pure infinite ocean of being uh, mm-hmm. is just something indescribable and that completely transformed my life i mean after that that experience nothing was the same again and and that's like i said that's really what made me dedicate my life to the pursuit of yoga and meditation so that's what led me to india eventually right
0: and i can imagine that experience would have been quite um i don't want to use the word uh, addictive but something that you'd, you'd want to experience more and more and become a real passion in your life
1: very much so. actually it wouldn't be a bad addiction <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's pictures because I would be the one to have <laughs> yeah. but it's what happens is there's a sense of recognition. They say it was like immediately without any, any philosophy or any talks. It's just like everything clicked in for me. Like, of course, you know, you go like this. Like, of course, this is what we really are, you know. And we are here so that we can find our way back home. Right? It's like it all makes sense, right? And then uh, life has uh, has a point, right? And so everything just clicked together for me. And so it becomes... Like, who who wants to live in limitation when you know that within yourself is this infinite space of fullness, you know, and and love and happiness. I mean, words really fall short yeah. of the experience. So, yeah, it is it is deeply transformative. And just knowing that that's in everybody, that we're all the same.
0: What was the, the feeling that made you discover that this was in everybody, that we're all the same?
1: Well, there's an immediate understanding that comes. I mean, again, like I said, I I, I learned so much. Like, um, like could be volumes of philosophy. And one of the things that becomes very obvious is that consciousness, which is really our essence, knows yeah, right that when you are in that in that space of your own being, you are not thinking with the intellect. But the thing is, it becomes very clear later that the intellect, the intelligence that we have in our mind is just a pale reflection of this immediate understanding that you get when there's no mind. So there is, really, it's our innate nature is just pure intelligence, and so you you get into that space and you understand everything that goes with it, right? And one of the things that you understand is, this is it. Like one of the things I understood is, this is what they mean by God. Not some cranky old guy up there in a cloud, you know, who gets angry very easily. <laughs> and you have to be very careful not to cross him, <laughs> which is how I have grown up, right? Yeah, a lot of us. Uh, but understanding, oh my God, so... When I was an atheist, really what I rebelled against was that idea of God, which I still, you know, I don't accept it. I mean, but then the experience is like, I understand, oh, okay, so you can call this whatever you want, I don't care. <laughs> but this is, this is the truth. This is, this is it.
0: Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. While you were over in India, you spent uh, several years there, and you took the name Swami Gitananda. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yeah. I became a Swami.
0: Yeah, amazing. Um, what does Gitananda mean?
1: Uh, it means the bliss of the Gita. Gita is a term that is used for uh, for some texts, like you know, the most famous being the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, there are several texts like that. So, um, I've always had a very very special place in my heart for the Bhagavad Gita or all other texts like Guru Gita, you know there's other texts that have that added to their name because it's it's like a composition that you could recite also. And um, for me just becoming a swami meant really being able to dedicate myself without distractions to to the pursuit of, of this experience.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And so then, you obviously don't call yourself Swami Gitananda now. Um, is there a reason why you left that name behind, or is, is it is it some experience that you had that made it more comfortable to be Carlos in the West? Or
1: yes, I, I formally left the monastic life uh, in, back in ninety eight. And looking back, it all makes sense. Like if I had to do it all over again, I would, I would do the same thing because I feel that as much as I love the monastic life and, and respect it and value it, I feel it's been very important in my journey to experience married life, right? I think that having a partner in life can be a very powerful instrument of evolution as well. And there's some things that you get to experience I mean, basically, if you are sincerely in a relationship, uh, it's a form of renunciation, right? Because mm-hmm. I gets replaced by us, we. That's the highest form of renunciation, if you take it that way. And, of course, when you live closely with somebody, your partner becomes also a mirror, particularly if you have that agreement, right? Like, like my wife and I have, it's like... Um, you're helping each other along. And so it can be a very powerful form of um, of, of practice as well, right? a very powerful format, you could say, or, or, or framework. And the other thing is I feel in our modern world, I don't think what we need is a philosophy of renunciation. Frankly, I think our world needs more a philosophy that can teach us to find spirituality depth right here right now which is why I'm, I'm so partial to tantra so looking back now i resonate much more uh, with with that outlook particularly in our current situation in the world than with an outlook of renunciation
0: so what exactly is tantra then
1: Tantra has been very misunderstood, you know, because still, it's like, I thought things are going to change as more people learn about Tantra, and, and it's true, more people are learning about Tantra properly, but still in the popular mind, you mentioned Tantra, and people think of sex. Some sort of either spiritualized sex or for some people really good sex. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, when you study tantra, you realize: well, yes, there are of course some rituals and practices that have to do with sexuality. They are very, really, a very tiny fraction of tantra. <laughs> so, contrary to the public image, um, the the main feature I would highlight in tantra is precisely that that teaches that the transcendental is also right here, right? That we don't have to go to a special place or, or do something special. What we need, the secret sauce, you could say, <laughs> is awareness. Mm. Awareness is the heart. It's the heart of any path, really. And what I find tantra brilliant is that it developed, this is no exaggeration, literally, it developed hundreds Hundreds, if not thousands of techniques to help us do that, so again it 's no exaggeration to say that you have a technique that you can that you can practice you can approach in any circumstance of life you know walking, talking to somebody, going to the bathroom, you know even sleeping, there are practices to do during sleep, so it 's when you study the history you realize that Tantra was really a revolution in the field of yoga. Because, again, instead of saying, uh, you know, you have to renounce, go to a quiet place and do your practice there, instead of doing that Tantra focused on how to experience the depth that is right here, right now. Mm. And and that's really the most amazing feature and, and one that I think our world very deeply needs
0: Just going back a bit, because I know people are going to have questions, because as you said, everybody does um, connect sex and Tantra together. Is this unique quality of awareness in every situation the reason why sexuality was included as part of this? Because it was a part of the whole?
1: Um, Sort of. Sort of. In a way, it all started, when you look at the early forms of Tantra, it started it's a sort of a contrarian way. Not that they were having some sort of adolescent rebellion or anything like that. But with the, the point, the logic behind the early tantric practices was, look, in, in the spiritual path, we're trying to get out of the little box of our understanding. If the way you go about it is by creating another box, so congratulations, you have a nicer box, <laughs> but you're still in a box. And so the way they went about breaking that box was really confronting major taboos of society, mm. things that we hold very dear. And some of those elements for our modern world, they may not seem like a big deal, but they were originally. For example, um, a part of the ritual being the consumption of alcohol. Mm. Again, from, a, from an orthodox perspective, that would be a big no-no. Uh, the consumption of meat and fish, again, from an orthodox uh, vegetarian outlook. That's like, wow, why would you do that, right? Involving the killing of animals and so on. And part of that was also breaking these taboos of sexuality. So engaging in sexual intercourse, not only outside of marriage, but intercast, breaking that taboo. And, for example, you know, a Brahmin could have sex with with an outcast woman. That's like a big taboo to break, right? So the whole reason to do this is that if you can find equanimity, if you can find transcendence, right, if you can maintain your awareness in the highest, as you are breaking these very cherished uh, rules of society but then you can maintain them anywhere. Mm. So there's a very deep motivation. Also, all these elements have a very deep symbology. I mean, the the drinking of alcohol is emblematic of the the inner intoxication, right? The inner joy that that we feel when we turn within. Uh, The sexual ritual is emblematic of the union, right? The integration Mm. of the pairs of opposites within us, Mm -hmm. The the fullness, the completeness. So there's also a very deep meaning to, to the practices. But because they are so colorful, I think the popular imagination, both in India historically and then in the West, that's what people have focused on, right? Again, they were just trying to to expand, which is, by the way, is the meaning of Tantra. Tantra means a tool for expansion, right? Mm, okay. So in that attempt to expand awareness, like I'm saying, you know, getting out of the box, uh, that's, that's how they went about it. Now, of course, Tantra moved on, it evolved. Like I said, they, they developed like hundreds, even thousands of techniques. Uh, but in the popular mind, it was the colorful thing that stuck, and you know, the same thing has happened in the West. I mean, people focus more on, on sex, and actually, by the way, misrepresenting, because whatever sex there is in Tantra has nothing to do with, you know, the sacred sexuality and all of that. Which, don't get me wrong, I think sacred sexuality is wonderful. Of course, we should, you know, move the <laughs> from just the animal stuff. But my point is, that is not what Tantra is about. If you want sacred sexuality, by all means don 't confuse it with Tantra though
0: you mentioned before that there was these pairs of opposites. Is this kind of part of the goal of Tantra is to unite these two, or is this an integral part of it?
1: You could say that yeah in in a way you know there are some aspects of of tantric philosophy that remind me a lot of of Taoism, mm-hmm. just like in Taoism, you have yin and yang, right the female and male principles. In a similar way, in tantra, you have Shiva, Shakti, which uh, they are not only in in terms of, of gender, right, male, female, but also they have a deeper ontological or philosophical meaning, right? Shiva represents pure being. Shakti, the feminine, represents awareness. And these two must be together. Being without awareness is meaningless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but awareness requires being. And so the two come to be understood as two sides of the same coin. Two aspects of one reality. What happens is, in the process of becoming human, in the process of manifestation, these two aspects become split partly, right? They can never be completely separate, but partly. Partly. So that we experience ourselves as incomplete. And in a way, when we desire anything, we are really looking for completeness. That's all right, that's what's behind all human desires is completeness. So the tantric take is Shiva Shakti are always looking for each other. But as long as we seek that union on the outside, we are destined <laughs> to frustration, right? Because the real union is not going to happen on the outside. It's within ourselves. Mm. So then, it's the unification of awareness and being. Exactly, exactly. But and you see, and when you when you really look at what that implies, which is what happens just in meditation, is you know when you go really deep within. If you don't add anything to the experience of being, then being is infinite. Mm. That is really the secret. Right? When we talk about expansion, the tantric analysis is that the moment we are bringing our attention to anything, we are contracting. Because now that's my reality, the thing I'm I'm looking at. Right? So similarly the moment I identify with my body with my personality my being now is being contracted mm-hmm. but if I can just let go of that right and just dive within myself by letting go of everything that is contracting my awareness I can just enter the space of infinite awareness hmm. okay
0: so then you're talking about how focusing on one thing is contracting your awareness. That's like if you focus on uh, drinking a, a glass of water, then you're just focusing on that and you're excluding everything else of creation, basically. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
1: Interesting. So the tantric formula is first then to this movement that I was talking about, right? Just let go. Just bring your awareness, which you do by pulling, you know, with with your will, just pulling your attention, your focal point within. And as you enter the depth of your being more and more, then you need to try and maintain that same awareness as you come out. So that the ideal state is one in which both experiences are combined. So, you need not limit yourself as you are drinking that glass of water. You don't need to lose your self awareness. That's how Tantra understands enlightenment. Many people are not clear these days. Whoa, what is enlightenment? Well, that is enlightenment from a Tantric perspective. If you can maintain your full self awareness or the self awareness of your fullness while you are. Walking, talking, drinking a glass of water, sleeping—right, any any daily activity, then you got it. Mm. <laughs> when that's twenty four seven, then <laughs> that's it. That's it.
0: I've seen in the Samkhya tradition they talk about Purusha and Prakriti as well, and that's that. It, and that is this idea of like manifest form and then consciousness, uh, as I as I understand it. Is this similar to this idea of Shiva and Shakti as well?
1: Um it is similar, but you could say Purusha and Prakriti are like a lower octave. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Samkhya tradition it, it can be very useful and and again as the basis to understand the path of meditation and so on, it would be very, very useful. From the tantric perspective, Samkhya is not wrong, it is incomplete. Which you know is not a put down at all because Tantra comes centuries after, right, after so they were able to build on whatever explanations you find before. It's a feature of Tantra that I like a lot, right, that Tantra doesn't say everybody else is wrong. They just say they're incomplete. (laughs) Because I, I think it's a fair point that you could make that case that Tantra has the most complete map, if you will, of the journey. And And so, from that perspective, Purusha and Prakriti are now at the individual level. They are the counterpart of Shiva and Shakti. But they are, Shiva and Shakti already split in that way that I was mentioning before, right? So, of course, yes, from that perspective, Samkhya is missing the whole journey above that principle of Maya, right? And it is fair to make that point because Samkhya stops at the level of the Purusha, the pure self, but it's still an individual self. Whereas Tantra says, no, no, there's more. (laughs) (laughs) Then the expansion comes and you realize you're not just a drop, you're the ocean.
0: Mm. You also mentioned that you talked about how your two things you're trying to unite were your being and awareness. It seems like that can be quite an elusive thing to really put your finger on exactly what being mm-hmm. is compared to awareness. Could you help define or differentiate the two a little bit for us? Yeah,
1: actually, that's, it's a very good point because if you just keep it like that in the abstract, but in application, it means, for example, you know, when we have the desire to know, right, that the passion for study, it's a form of love and Awareness means your, your intelligence is seeking what is there, the knowledge that is there, right? So that's the being aspect. So in wanting to know, what we are seeking is is the fullness. Similarly, uh, things like eating, right? In a very real sense, we eat our world. The act of eating is is used metaphorically also, by the way, as as this assimilation of all difference, right? And the digesting of difference. You find actually some tantra uses that language to describe the process of of spirituality, of of this inner journey. So it's similar, right? The food is there, and now is my experience, awareness of eating the food. And also the pleasure that comes from that, it is a small form of reunion, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, every act of experience is like that. It's a meeting of awareness and being. There are practices that center around the process of perception for this reason. So really, you can look at everything that we desire, what is happening, what is that desire. It is an impulse to join our awareness with that thing that is right, whatever you want. So the experience of anything is that small joining of Shiva and Shakti.
0: I remember last time I got to sit with you, you did discuss how Shiva and Shakti potentially represented time and space. And I found that fascinating. I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit about that.
1: It's actually connected to what we were discussing earlier about um, awareness and being. And you could say very roughly that um, the the main expression of being is its dimensionality as space, right? Things are there, the world, the, the objective world is there, and its main feature is that of uh, spaciousness, you could say. Right? So this is what in, in Tantra is described kind as of the path of space, right? In that split that we were talking about, the Shiva-Shakti split, Uh, The path of objectivity is projected as space, right, as an extension for us to experience. Whereas what is called the path of time is really an intrinsic property of awareness. When awareness becomes limited, which is our case right now, we can only experience things in sequence, one after the other. And that's time. It's an, sometimes people get confused because, from the viewpoint of physics, you can conceptualize time as something that has an objective reality, right? But, but there's a very important distinction in Indian philosophy, and particularly in Tantra, between change. When we talk about time in physics, we are talking about change, a rate of change. I mean, that's what a watch is, right? It's, it's an instrument to measure a rate of change. But that's not time from the perspective of Tantra that we are talking about. Time is my perception of change. Mm. Which explains why maybe, you know, for a person, the same amount of objective time, we could say, is very long, (laughs) and for somebody else it just goes like that. Because fundamentally, when you look at it, what time is, subjectively, personally... Is the experience of sequence, or the sequence of experience, and so that's an intrinsic aspect of of awareness, right? So in this split that we were talking about of Shiva, Shakti, or you know, being and awareness, those are the the two major uh, so the pathways of manifestation, and that's how Tantra looks at them: time and space. Mm.
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. It is interesting because it's it gives us an understanding of really those are the dimensions of our experience, and there are different levels, right? So as we go deeper or higher, you could say, uh, the perception of time uh, differs from that of other lower levels. Yeah, because tantra develops then practices to work with both. Uh, you can work with space or you can work with time.
0: Mm-hmm. You have been listening to Living Yin podcast by Truth Robinson. What are the yoga devas?
1: That's uh, sometimes misunderstood because of how the early reception was. Uh, so people started talking about polytheism, right? Oh, they have all these gods and so. On. But when you look at the the traditions, uh, by the way, this the the So this pantheon of deities is something that you also find in other traditions like Jainism and Buddhism, not only in Hinduism. When you look at the original understanding, which comes from the Vedic mythology, it's probably the oldest, they looked at the world as a manifestation of that ultimate absolute. So therefore the whole world is alive, right? The whole world is, is an expression of that absolute. And that's what the gods are, we're called the Devas. They are like um you could say like the sparks, creative sparks of the absolute. So, for example, fire, right? Fire is a power that is not present only in flames, but they understand fire as being present in our eyes, in our senses, right? Is the light that illumines that fire is present in our intellect, is the light of understanding. So, it's a principle, which is a manifestation of the absolute. And the same is true of every aspect of nature. And the whole, you know, not only the mythology, but the iconography, right, the description, uh, it gives you a way of conceptualizing, of relating to something that otherwise would remain more abstract.
0: What other practices is part of the tantric tradition? Like if we want to go down this path and be a tantric yogi, what practices will we use?
1: Well, there are there are texts that center more on the, on the practices. There's a small text, it's called Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. It's becoming more and more uh, well-known. That just contains meditation techniques. Basically, what Tantra did is they classified all types of approaches, right? And so they are, like when I was saying earlier, you have, you know, hundreds to choose from. That gives you sort of an entry point to study this classification method, right? It's what they call the upayas, or the... An upaya means a means, right? So the means of entry into the highest consciousness, And so you have, at the lower level, what is called the anava upaya, means the practices where the main focal point is the body, right? So things like asana, for example, uh, ritual, pranayama, right? All practices that have the body, some forms of meditation, if you're meditating on your breath, things like that. Then the next level is what is called shakta upaya, and that means... Practices where the main focal point is the mind. So there you have so many, right? Visualization, so many forms of meditation, like mantra repetition in your mind and so on. Study as well. And then at the highest level, you have what is called Shambhavopaya, which means the practices of awareness. That is the subtlest, right? Because there you're not doing things like counting breaths or something like that. No, it's just about maintaining awareness. So that's more what I was referring to earlier, right? This process of through your willpower, maintaining self-awareness anchored within yourself at all times. There's one of the the tantric texts that, in fact, I've been working, I finished the translation. It's a short text. It's just 105 verses by Abhinavagupta. He was arguably the the highest uh, tantric teacher. Uh, He lived in Kashmir, you know, in the north of India in the 10th, 11th century. And he wrote, among other works, this little, little work called Paramarthasara. It means The Essence of Supreme Reality. And there, what I love about this text, among other things, I mean, he talks about karma, he talks about so many interesting things. It's actually, a very good, I'm converting it into a book because it's really like a perfect introduction to tantra from within the tradition itself. The focal point of practice there, coming back to your question, is this practice of awareness. It's about always, you know, don't lose yourself. This is what happens to us is we become extroverted, right? We become caught up in the things because we have things to do and to take care of and so on. And the, the challenge then is not to get lost outside, to to retain your center, no matter what's happening on the outside. That's a constant practice of, of will. And that's the highest form of practice. So even that can give you an idea of the range of approaches that tantra presents so it's really worthwhile anybody who's interested it's really worthwhile to to find a good teacher and to approach the sources directly because tantra is a topic actually this could apply to any yoga tradition that you cannot really learn it from books yeah from books you can learn about their philosophy their view of the world and so on fine but the practices, you need to learn them in person from somebody who's in, in turn learned them in person. Uh, the, the texts never give you the information you need <clears throat> to do the practices yourself. So you need that, uh, the oral tradition, right? has always been the system. So find somebody who knows about the practices and then incorporate them into your life.
0: You mentioned uh, another technique as well, mantra. Uh, what is mantra?
1: Yes, mantra is also is something that although it has existed really from the beginning. I mean, you go to the earliest sources on yoga and you see already mantra. But really, it's, it's one of the things that I've done is I've traced the history of the practice, right? How it has evolved, and what I find is that for centuries, people basically used OM. To meditate, for the most part. There's a couple of the mantras that you see in the Upanishads, in you know, the old texts. But really is within this umbrella of Tantra that we are discussing, which is already the medieval period, right? So Tantra, we start seeing it 4th, 5th century, and from then on it just takes off. It is within this umbrella of Tantra that mantra was really developed into what we could call a, a technology, and the reason is because tantra investigates sound as an intrinsic property of consciousness. And if you if you look at it, consciousness is vibrational, mm. which is why we react so strongly to noises, music. If you think about it, right? You hear one of those machines, brrr, and it has quite a strong effect. Mm. I remember once I was in uh, the Gold Coast in in Australia, and, you know, they do this race every year, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and those cars are so incredibly noisy, (laughs) and every time a car went by, it's like somebody was punching me, literally, like punching me in the heart, and I asked all the people, I said, is this, like, just my thing, or, but no, everybody was saying, yeah, 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 that's how it feels. Yeah, but this is the power of sound. And that was not pleasant, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean the race is very impressive to see the cars go by, but um but the sound was not was not fun. And then you compare that to the experience of music, if you think about it. So what is music? It's just a sound vibration, but it affects you immediately. So this is the principle behind mantra. If you know what you're doing, if you have a deep understanding, not only of consciousness and the structure of consciousness, you know, the different levels, but also sound, then you can use sound as a way of reconnecting with the source of sound, which is what mantra is all about. So that's what I mean, The, the literal meaning of mantra. Mantra literally means a tool for contemplation, a tool for thinking, So, in other words, it gives you something, a focal point for your mind. But it's such that it's not going to bring you out like a conventional word. Right? If you say water, glass, or whatever, or even love, right? That word points to other things. But when you repeat a mantra, it doesn't do that. The mantra actually turns you within. And that's the great value of mantra. So then it, it becomes, I think it's really the the most accessible form of meditation of all the techniques that are out there. Anybody can do mantra. And it's deceptively simple. You know, because people say, well, you're just repeating some mumbo-jumbo. Well, that's exactly the whole point. You repeat a sound that it doesn't create meaning, and therefore it just will draw you into your own being.
0: You discussed how, um, sound is vibration, but when we look at, and obviously I don't know, I'm not a quantum physicist or an atomic physicist, but what I've heard about from a molecular and an atomic level is that everything is vibrating. And so when you're talking about connecting to the source of sound, are you sort of talking about how everything in the universe is just vibration and it's come from this one point that began the vibration?
1: Very much mm-hmm. so. Even before tantra, you know, you have within the, the Vedantic tradition, you have this not this understanding of Shabda Brahman, right? The absolute, literally in the form of Shabda, in the form of sound, and the main sort of uh, uh, label, if you will, or distinguishing feature of that form of Brahman is Om. So Om is called the Akshara, right? The the imperishable, because it's it's meant to be always there, part and parcel of the nature of the absolute, right? So, but Om, not the sound Om, right? But at the deepest level, and and so this is something that doesn't originate in Tantra. It's been there much before, and like you say, totally totally is in accordance with more of uh, the the quantum understanding, the quantum physics. Everything is vibrational. Uh, but then I would argue that uh, Tantra takes that to a whole other level because Tantra understands definitely all, all reality as vibrational. So you have this, this whole tradition. is called spanda within, within Tantra. With spanda means vibration, pulsation, which sees the universe in exactly the way you're describing. And I mean, there's some books that have been written by physicists pointing out all these, these points of convergence, that's definitely one of them. Mm.
0: And then you discussed how, you know, the sound, the mantra, where did we actually get these mantras from? Like where, where, where did we first learn about it or how did they discover them?
1: One of the things that you see in Tantra often is that when you are going to employ a mantra ritually, Part of the the understanding when you receive the mantra is to understand who was the rishi or the seer, and so what that means is that the mantra is not like somebody woke up one morning and saying, "Oh, I feel clever today. Let me create a mantra," <laughs> <laughs> but that these sounds come from a very deep level of experience, right? Particularly from the level of enlightenment, right? An enlightened master can then, you know, they they see. Right? They are the seers, or they hear, if you will, and then they transmit it. So this uh, this is a very integral part of mantra in Tantra, that they are not of human origin, but that they are just part of the revealed teachings. In general, Tantra considers itself a revealed tradition, in that sense, right? That it doesn't come out of somebody's cleverness, but that it is a deeply intuitive understanding that comes from somebody's enlightenment
0: Mm. and so then um is it important that we get this pronunciation exactly correct for the mantras
1: yes yeah yeah but at the same time i would say don't obsess about it we do our best But I think there are also other factors at play, right? It's not that the only thing that matters when you're using mantra is the pronunciation. Of course, pronunciation has its power. And, you know, we're talking about the power of sounds. so the more faithfully you can reproduce that, the better. But I think there's other factors that can, at least in my subjective experience, I would say they're even more powerful, which is, for example, the enthusiasm that you bring to your practice. You know, the the love, the dedication that you bring to your practice. That if you if you have perfect pronunciation, but your heart is dry, then well, what's the point? <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: So is this an example of like with the being and the awareness and the mantra?
1: Oh, the yeah, very much so. Yeah, because that's what you find is that you start from this experience of I'm repeating a mantra and then as you go deep, you realize, you are the mantra. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the mantra is just like an expression of yourself. That's that's the that's really the. Um, I mean, we could say the true mantra is the awareness when you get when you transcend that separation between you and the mantra, and you enter that space of just uh, oneness.
0: And you're talking about this vibrational quality inside of us. Is this similar to what the yogis talk about as
1: prana? Ah, prana is one of the manifestations of this vibrational quality. Uh, And in fact, there's a tantric passage that says praksamvit prane parinata, which means in the beginning, consciousness manifested as prana, the vital energy. Because uh, uh, vitality, life itself, can be described as the movement or the impulse of consciousness to manifest. That's why it's unstoppable. You cannot stop life. It is the expression of consciousness. So you could say that prana, vital energy, is one of the manifestations of this creative pulsation.
0: And just being a Chinese medicine doctor, I have to ask: is, is there like these energy pathways similar to Chinese medicine that prana flows through?
1: Very much so, absolutely. the The only difference I find is that, of course, in traditional Chinese medicine, the emphasis is on therapeutic, right, healing, whereas mm-hmm. the description of these pathways, you know, what we call the meridians in Chinese medicine, what we call nadis mm-hmm. in Sanskrit. Uh, the emphasis is different, right? Or or rather the orientation, right? Because in in yoga, they are more in the context of a discussion on meditation, whereas in traditional Chinese medicine, they are describing the context of healing, Mm. how to prevent those imbalances.
0: And then you mentioned previously about um, how a lot of what we know came from Kashmir or or some of Tantra came from Kashmir. I've heard of groups like uh, the Kashmir Shaivism, and there's other groups as well within Tantra. Are there a few of the more common ones that people have known about and, and how they sort of differ in their, their philosophy or understanding or the way they work with Tantra?
1: Well, if you look uh, traditionally, there was a, a variety. And you, all these traditions, when we talk about yoga, um, if you think about it right back in the medieval period, there's no TV, <laughs> there's no internet, there's no radio. Right? So, so how, in practice, what does that mean for people? Like if you and I were now in the 12th century and we wanted to learn Tantra, you have to find a teacher. And so in practice, all these traditions lived in the what is called the parampara, right? the, the succession of teacher and, and disciple, the lineages. And there was not necessarily a sense of, oh, this is like an old India tradition, right? It's a different time. And and so, therefore, all these traditions are going to manifest and live through branches. So, from the early centuries of Tantra, you see that happening, and you see Tantra also uh, manifesting within Buddhism, even within Jainism, and what we call Hindu Tantra, right? Which is... Tantra then manifesting in all these uh, currents of Hinduism, like Shaivism, Vaishnavism, these still exist, right? Or Shakta Tantra, which emphasizes more the feminine. So you have quite a panoply of orientations, we could say, of branches. And then within those, exactly how you learn it is going to depend on your teacher and how he or she has learned it from before so you, you end up with with a great variety, and even what the branch that we call Kashmir Shaivism because it developed mostly in that area of Kashmir, even there you have different orientations right there 's like five major orientations within kashmir shaivism uh, but for so this has always been the traditional picture right one of, of quite a plurality of lineages for us now, I always recommend people if, if, if they really want to learn. Tantra from the sources. It's a tough nut to crack to go into the original text that that call themselves tantras or agamas. And so I recommend studying Kashmir Shaivism instead because it's much more approachable. And it also has the advantage that it has received a lot of academic attention within the last few decades. And so all the major sources are translated, right? So you can read them yourself. You can study them yourself. And and still what you're getting is a distillation of those original sources that I'm talking about.
0: And so where would somebody start if they wanted to get into Kashmir Shaivism?
1: Uh, it's a good question. <laughs> um, in general, I think it's fair to say that the more genuine traditions are not the ones that advertise so colorfully and so prominently because nowadays there is such a profusion of places that call themselves tantric, and when you look you know, underneath the surface, they can be very iffy. Uh, I would say, look at established traditions. For example, the work of uh, Swami Laxman Juh. Swami Laxman Juh was a great representative of Kashmir Shaivism. He passed away in the decade of the 90s. When you look at uh, his teaching, I have no doubt that he obtained enlightenment. He was a very, very humble man. But he shared with his students what happened to him. And there's there's no doubt. And he is very sweet, you know, he says, I don't want to brag, but this is what happened to me. <laughs> you know. And I have some friends that are that are students of his and they also share the same thing, that they could see this deep transformation that happened in the in the last years of his life. So when he was teaching about this text of Kashmir Shaivism, that's where he was coming from. All these texts are available, and and the recordings are available online, Uh, Swami Laxman Jew. And that would be a great entry point, right? You can also choose a more scholarly uh, study, if that's your thing, right? If you're more interested in the philosophy and so on. then yes, there's there's a wealth of material. So many scholars are working in the field of tantra. So it just depends on whether you want something more like scholarly oriented or something more practice oriented.
0: And so what do you think the greatest gift Tantra has to offer the world today?
1: It's exactly the the point that I was mentioning at the beginning, right? To realize that the highest is right here, right now. All we have to do is open our awareness. That's the greatest gift because, I mean, I could say, you know, I look back and, I can tell you during all this challenge that we are living through, the pandemic, and, and also, by the way, the challenges we have awaiting us, right? I don't want to be, like, <laughs> bringing in bad news, but climate change is there and many of the challenges that we have. I find that just the the philosophy, the outlook on life alone is incredibly valuable. I can tell you there hasn't been one day that I haven't been grateful for yoga and for what I have learned and and for Tantra, uh, but for yoga in general and meditation. Uh, But specifically, this aspect that I don't depend on anything external to connect to the source, to connect to my own being. is right here, right now. It's available to me. Mm,
0: That's beautiful. You have been listening to Living Yin podcast by Truth Robinson. So what else are you working on at the moment? Like, what do you fill your days with?
1: Well, right now, the, the main project has been this, uh, this text that I was talking about, the Paramartasara. And um, I'm, I'm in the process of transcribing all the all the lectures that I've given, uh, you know, going verse by verse. And I want to put that into book form to make it more accessible. And then the other project that I've been working on for quite some time, that's a work in progress, is uh, a book about karma and the whole journey of evolution and reincarnation. And what I want to do is to to bring karma out of this sort of... uh, Strange place that it got to in popular imagination as some sort of cosmic punishment, <laughs> and to explain what karma really means, uh, and again, not as a philosophical concept, but as something that we all experience. And that's, you know, going back to the original teachings that you find in the yoga tradition about yoga, because it can really change your life, and and also, it, I think, is the backbone of all all practice that we do in yoga. And combine that, because it's connected to the notion of reincarnation. What I have found over the years is that there's so much modern, very solid research on reincarnation. Right? From things like children who remember previous lifetimes, that you can verify what they remember, people who have near death experiences. Uh, so there's uh, there's been a, a whole wave of very rigorous study of the phenomenon of reincarnation. And I find it fascinating that when you put that together with the traditional teachings, they match. <laughs> so that's what I've been doing. I've been gathering lots of uh, studies, recent studies on this type of experience, and I want to put that together with the traditional mm.
0: And so how will people be able to experience this with you, the book that you're writing?
1: Uh, for anybody who's interested in staying in touch, the best uh, way is through the website. There's a button there on the home page that says subscribe to our newsletter. I don't send newsletters. <laughs> yes, We all get so much email already. I don't want to fill your people's inboxes more. But we do send announcements when something new comes up, you know, when a new course is completed, or when these books start coming out.
0: So. Okay, amazing. And do you wor- run any other trainings or workshops or anything else?
1: Yes, uh, and, and you know, before the pandemic, I used to travel a lot. Now is through through this wonderful uh, medium of of the internet. In fact, I've been you know I'm going to be teaching a course on about uh, mantra uh, with my friends in in Australia and Buladela. I'm in the middle of uh, part of a training that my friends are doing up in Byron Bay. And um, we're starting also, we're going to do some sessions starting, studying the tantric understanding of the Bhagavad Gita. Also with my friends from Buladela. So uh, th- thanks to the internet, I've been able to still continue to be in touch with, uh, with friends all over the world and, and continue to do workshops and trainings.
0: Excellent. And do you have any like video courses or video trainings that we could do?
1: Yes, I've, I've put up some things in my Vimeo channel that are just like available to everybody. And I'm planning also to use that channel as I get the materials ready for courses. I have some courses already that are recorded, but they just need to be tweaked and edited and. And then I'll be able to make them available. I'm just looking for a video editor right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if anybody out there is a video editor.
1: Yeah, okay. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Well, Carlos, it's been an absolute pleasure spending this time with you. And I have learned so much. And it's always incredible spending time with you. And um, yeah, I look forward to, to meeting and seeing you again.
1: Yes, likewise. And thank you so much for, for making this connection possible, Truth.
0: just another heads up this podcast was actually released secretly a week before the public release if you'd like to get your hands on this podcast or youtube classes a week earlier than everybody else all you need to do is head over to livingin.com subscribe to the mailing list and get an exclusive sneak preview delivered fresh into your mailbox a week before everybody else Thanks for joining me. I'm Truth Robinson. You can follow me on Instagram at Truth Robinson. Or if you'd like to donate to support this podcast, grab a Living Yin singlet or train with me in Yin Yoga online or in person. Go to livingyin.com. One last thing. By submitting a review on iTunes, you're giving the gift of this podcast to so many other people. And even though I love seeing all the beautiful reviews, and I really do, it's way more exciting to know that your review is stimulating so many Yin yoga journeys all around the world. That has to be the easiest gift you have ever given.